Welcome to another edition of Truth and Rhythm. This is the interview show that gets deep in the pocket with contemporary music's foremost masters of the groove. I am your host, Scott Dr. GX Wolfi. If you enjoy this programming, subscribe to the Funkin' Stuff channel on YouTube, which is where Truth and Rhythm lives, and be an advocate by spreading the word among fellow funk, jazz, and R&B music lovers. Join Truth and Rhythm's membership program through Patreon. You can also submit a direct donation to the cause anytime at funkinstuff.net. At that site, you can also purchase the book, Everything's on the One, The First Guide of Funk. Shop for official Truth and Rhythm and Funkin' Stuff merchandise and use the Amazon links for all of your online purchases, which allocates a percentage to this show. For those of you who go the extra step in supporting the show, you have my heartfelt gratitude for allowing us to continue to shine the light on those special artists whose quest is to find truth in rhythm. I am pleased to welcome to the Truth and Rhythm Command Center keyboardist, producer, composer, and more, Ronnie Song. His musical credits include the funk band Dayton, also Xavier, Bootsy Collins, George Clinton, Najee, Melba Moore, Freddie Jackson, as well as some solo recordings. Among the jamming tracks involving his work are Work That Sucker to Death and Crackety Crack, as well as the albums, The One Giveth and The Count Taketh Away, and computer games. Having also contributed to uh, contributed music to TV and movie productions, he is an author as well. So, wow. You're uh, the Renaissance man, Ronnie. How are you? been busy. <laughs> you know, we have a certain amount of time on this planet that God gives us, so we try to exhaust ourselves with whatever gifts we have, you know. And that's, that's, that's what I live by. Well, the output's been enjoyed by so many, so we're all grateful for that. Right. Well, that's good to hear. That, yeah. that purpose is being, you know, fulfilled a little bit. Where are you today, Ronnie? I am currently in Phoenix, Arizona. And you call that home nowadays? or? Uh, yeah, right now, but I'm working on um, setting up a situation uh, over on the east side of the country as well. Um we're looking at setting up some pretty serious stuff back in the New York, Southern Connecticut area. Okay. And you're from Connecticut originally, right? Yes, yes I am. Yes, I am. Yeah. Whereabouts there? Hartford, Connecticut, the insurance capital of the world. <laughs> Among many other things, actually, that people don't know about. I'm surprised. Yeah, yeah. I'm not aware of too much funk coming out of Connecticut. Am I wrong? Well, believe it or not, there's a lot of funk that came out of Connecticut. It's just that they didn't have the, you know how it is, man. If if it's not connected to the big management firm or the big record label, uh, the, we did have Xavier, which made some big, big funk noise. And there's a group called Wood, Brass, and Steel that came out of uh, 
Joe Robinson and Sylvia Robinson's camp years ago uh, during the All Platinum record days. Uh, Wood Brass and Steel was a group of guys from from Hartford. Uh, Hubert Powell, who was the most awesome keyboard player when I was growing up. You know, he was the guy that I emulated and wanted to be like as a kid. And uh, he later on went on to pastor a church, believe it or not, after he left the music uh, side of that music side of things. But you had Doug Wimbish, who was a famous bass player, who we all grew up together. And Doug actually played on a few of my records that I produced. Uh, Skip McDonald on guitar, Barton Campbell on guitar, Randy Randy Bost, is it? Randy Best or Randy Bost, I think is his last name. Trumpet player from Connecticut. Uh, and I forgot, oh, Otha Stokes, uh, who was the brother of Otis Stokes that was in Lakeside. All came up, they were right there in Hartford, and they, 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 they were pretty, they did pretty well for themselves. As far as the funk, those are the only two uh, bands that I remember that came out of Hartford from the funk standpoint, but they made a mark, I gotta say. It's funny, Ronnie. Got George Clinton and Bootsy to get on the Xavier record, so that says a lot about funk, right? Yeah, no <laughs> doubt. It's funny, uh, Ronnie, because I just had uh, Arthur Stokes on two days ago, and he's uh, Otis Stokes' brother. So uh, funny that uh, the Stokes family comes in again. Yeah, because I remember Arthur when I was in Dayton. I met him once, but uh, his brother Otha and I were very, very close friends. We had a very unique, funny relationship. But he was a sax player. And he he's the one that played on um, Wood Brass and Steel. He was the he was that the the sax player for them. Yeah. And then Doug has uh, Doug Wimbish has been on. Um, yeah. And, uh, haven't had Skip McDonald yet, but maybe. Yeah, Doug and I we go so far back that when I when I, I was in Bloomfield, my my cousin Jeffrey Harris lived on Euclid. He lived on I forgot the name of that street. It's right there, Greenwood. Some I forgot the name of the street, but he lived literally diagonally across from my cousin. And my cousin Jeffrey and Stanley Singletary and uh, Beanie on bass, all those guys were practicing. And, and I remember Doug sitting in the corner. Doug was only in about sixth grade at the time. And he was sitting in the corner with a guitar. He couldn't be in the band because he was too young. But he was sitting in the corner with a guitar that had two strings on it. It was a guitar, but it was two strings on it. And while the band was practicing, he was over there just, you know, with no amplifier, just 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 going at it, going at it. I said, this kid is serious about this. And then later on, boom, Doug Wimbish, you know, superstar appears. <laughs> wow, that's something else. It yeah. just it was like, uh, like innate, you know? Yeah, he is just, he's just gifted. God just gave it to him, you know, all the way around. He's just, just lovely. And a person, as a person, we've always had wonderful times whenever we did connect again after our childhood days. Yeah. What and what, how, when, why were you drawn to music? Oh, that's a, that's a long story. Back when I was a kid, uh, I was, I mean, really, when I say a kid, I'm talking four five years old and my parents were avid you know record collectors i mean they played everything in the house uh and when i say everything i'm talking everything my father was a big johnny mathis uh he he loved the r&b stuff but 
like on Saturdays, we would clean, even they would do house cleaning and things like that. And they would open the windows, and I'd be outside as a kid, and all you hear was Johnny Mathis, Sinatra, you know, uh, knocking Cole. And then my mother would let him have his his turn, and then she would put on all the other, you know, R&B stuff that was popular, uh, you know, in the early, early 60s. And uh, it was just music, 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 music. I would even go to bed at night, and they say, all right, you got to go to bed because you got to go to school, and I'm laying in the bed, and it's like you know, 8 o'clock at night, and I wake up, it's, it's 10 o'clock, and I'm hearing uh, Dionne Warwick records playing in the living room, and it's like just the magic of what that was, and as a kid, you know, you're six years old, you're seven, you know, you, you don't fully understand the concept of it, at least back in those days, I didn't. I just knew how it moved. I knew how I felt about it. And I remember many nights while my mother and father were in the living room playing this music, and I would go to the door of my bedroom, and you know, there's a little crack at the bottom between the floor and the door, and the light in the hallway. And my father was a parliament cigarette smoker, so I could smell the cigarette smoke coming through the door, but I would hear all this, I could hear this music, and I was glued to the floor. And so I remember I got in trouble in school. It was about first grade, I think it was. And I'm gazing out the window, and the teacher's talking, and I'm hearing and what I know now. At the time, I didn't fully understand, but now that I'm a you know musician and a composer, I would hear all these string arrangements, all these horns, French horns, and oboes, and violins, and this wonderful music in my head, and re and would remember the arrangement that I heard. So I'm coming along, and I know the song of the end of the song, and I'm humming the string class in my head, and I would get in trouble with people would be like, what are you doing? You know, pay attention, you know. So, after that, I knew, okay, there's something about this. And so I started, my mom had a piano. I started fooling around with the piano and um, asked her if I could take lessons. And, you know, I guess she wanted to see how serious I was because she, she was a piano player. She played for the church choir. And uh, my father, so he didn't record himself, but he was a very, very good singer. And a lot of people don't know that, but he was really an amazing singer. And so I would be on the piano uh, as much as I could. And as I fooled around and fooled around, my mom took me over to the uh, Julius Park School of Music, which is a part of the University of Park, is a world-renowned, Julius Park is a world-renowned uh, uh, music college. And um, on Saturday, I would have to go and and she had to go buy the little red book, the Thompson book that everybody has for beginners for piano. And needless to say, it bored, it bored me to death. <laughs> I learned my fingering, thank God, though, you know, the one, three, five, and one, two, three, four, five, and then kind of cross my fingers over and all that stuff. But it bored, it, it bored me to death. And then I remember hearing, uh, I think the turnaround for me, was hearing the uh, piano, the, the the record by uh, uh, Ramsey Lewis, "Wade in the Water," 
And when I heard that, it just turned the button on. And I just sat there and I learned that song. I sat there and started doing So I, I figured it out and I started learning how to play it. And then I went to school and we were in the auditorium and my cousin, <laughs> Tony Harrington, who's a great singer himself, he recorded with Marion Meadows actually on one of his records, but it was Tony and a guy named Terry, I think Terry's last name, Terry Johnson. And he used to try to sing and do things. And we're in order to come bus kids. And, and so I lifted the piano up and I started playing Ramsey's Lost Way in the Water. And then everybody just started charging the piano. Like they can't believe that I know how to play this song. And that's all I knew how to play. Then when they said, play something else, I was like, uh, <laughs> I don't think that's going to work. But the music just got in me. And as I got older, man, um, as far as just playing, you know, I started playing for my church and uh, writing songs for the choir and things and stuff. But then I got really intrigued by uh, rangers like Gene Page, uh, Tom, Tommy Bell, uh, what uh, a lot of the guys were doing, Earth, Wind, Fire records and Norman Whitfield and Quincy and what he was doing. And I started just like a sponge, man. I just started absorbing all this stuff, all this stuff. And this was back in the early 70s. By then, I was just eating everything that was music. I didn't care what it was. I sat in, I sat in a room for a week until I learned how to play the entire Headhunters album by Herbie Hancock. I wasn't going to leave the house until I learned how to play the whole thing. And... Uh, so more than performing the music, I, I, I felt more uh, passionate about creating it and composing it. And uh, that's when studying guys like Tommy Bell and Jean Page and all these great arrangers uh, who just became a part of my soul, actually. And then when I got a... And this, this will take too long. I don't want to keep... I mean, my story is so amazing. I have so many amazing... You know... I'm only doing this because God just said, you know, I'm gonna let I'm gonna let you meet this one, that one, that one. And it was just the way it happened. And my first gig, my first professional big record industry gig was uh aside from me doing my own album when I was like, you know, seventy six, I think we did a gospel album that's pretty famous around the world now. People are still playing it, uh somebody who family lost. But I got a call from a friend of mine. Uh, Willie Willie Jenkins was a very amazing piano player, and he took me to meet. It took me to a Benny King show one night. He said, "You gotta go. I don't have anything to wear to no show." He said, "I got a shirt for you. Just get, get you know, just be ready. I'm picking you up." And we went, and and after we went backstage and met Benny, and I think at the time I was only something like nineteen. About 19 years old, something like that. And he says, uh, to Benny, he said, This is my friend, man. He's fine, man. He's he's a great dude, man. He's a great musician. And you know, Benny, if you if you knew Benny, anybody knows him, man, his smile was like this big. His heart was that big. And he just looked at me, you know, this young guy, and he just smiled and made me feel so welcome. And the, and then when Willie said this one thing, Willie said, 
yeah, man, I know you're working on another record, and you and your son are doing some stuff. You need to, you need to bring him on, man, because he's a great, he's a great string arranger. I had never arranged a string section in my life, and that's what he told uh, Benny. I'm like, why did you tell him that? You know, but thank God, uh, it pushed me into a, another level out of my comfort zone. And so when I got the call from Benny. And he calls the house, and my mother uh, answers the phone, and she said, "Who is this?" I could hear her talking, and she said, "Who?" And she hangs the phone up on the person, and so I said, "My, who was that?" She said, some, "Somebody call you talking about it being king, you know, because she couldn't just she couldn't fathom at the moment, you know, that somebody like that that he's a big fan of even would call me." phone rings again. And I said, Mom, don't, that's him. He's actually, you know, I met him the other night. And she says, what? And she picks up the phone and she's apologizing. Oh, I'm so sorry, Mr. King. I didn't know who was about. And I talked to him and he invites me down and he says, I got to be in the studio in two days with my son and I need string for two songs, string arrangements for two songs. So I was like, okay. But I figured it out. And it worked out. And it was my first game. When I walked in, I thought I was making all kinds of mistakes back then. You didn't have the computer. You didn't have the little glossy uh, uh, notation software. You had to write it out yourself. You had to write it. So I had to sit there and figure it out, which is another miracle, which I'll share at another time. And uh, I took this big uh, lump of uh, music, you know, uh, paper, and, and I was, like, nervous, and I'd written, I had eraser marks all over it, and I walk in, and this is what makes it, this is what's making it worth that. I walk in, and Frank Sinatra's uh, conductor and concert master is the guy doing the session. I mean, come on, man. I'm just a 19-year-old kid from Harvard. What, 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 what year is this about? This was this was seventy-seven. No, no, earlier, seventy-six, seventy-five, seventy-six, somewhere around in there, I believe. Yeah, he, I mean, he had Benny, done, a, he had done that, a record with him and his son came up and did a record down at New Jersey. He was on Luigi's old studio. Because Benny King had kind of made a comeback right around then with Supernatural Thing he being did. a hit. That, yeah. That was the hit that I had yeah. went. I had went to the show with Willie, and that's the song he had sung. That's the song that he had sung. This is the natural thing he refused. So uh, that exact, that's the exact time. And so I walk in, and Richard Maximoff was standing there, and he's you know, Richard, you know, Frank Sinatra's guy. And I, I, I walk up to him. He said, "Where's the music?" I give it to him, and first thing I'm thinking about. This is going to be the biggest embarrassment. You know, I had all this paper and all the notes and the eraser marks all over the place. He opens it up and there's about 15 guys out there, string uh, players. And he's, he's sitting there like this. And he's like, he's obviously, now that I compose music, I know what he's doing. Then I didn't have a clue, but he was sitting there. I could tell he was singing the, the score, basically. And then he looks over to me. And he says, you wrote this? I said, yeah. He said, 
this your first time doing it? I say, yeah. He said, he said, this is pretty damn good. For a first time. That's a smile. You know, so young, just doing it, just doing it for the first time. He said, the only thing he taught me a few little things about, you know, natural science, the charge, and blah, blah, blah. He said, but other than that, he said, this is really fantastic stuff. So I go in the control room and I'm sitting there and the music starts up. And man, let me tell you, when you hear a string arrangement of any corn strings, whatever, that you put together coming back at you with the full band and the full track, and it's and, and and it's what you wrote, it's what came out of you, and you hearing it played back by the musician. It is the most awesome feeling. And that's the drug that I got addicted to. So that's how I really started. I mean, I started early, but that moment was it for me. It was like an addiction. I couldn't stay away from it. Wow. And did, did those arrangements end up on a record of Benny's? It was it was actually his son, uh, Benny King Jr. And I think they put it out. I was looking for it. And I, I that's the thing. I never could find it. But I, it was two songs. And I remember once the name of one song was, I, I just can't explain Wait, I, I can't explain myself when I'm around you with the lyric. The big, the big thing I think uh, was when I did uh, when I did Najee's record. I think that's what kicked me into the next off in a way that most people didn't uh, expect it to. If you know what I'm saying. How did you uh, make the Najee connection? Well, I was uh, the group Xavier uh, worked at Sucker to Death, as you know about that record. I had produced on that and wrote, co-wrote the song, co-wrote the song with some band members. And uh, Ted Courier, who was the record executive at EMI at the time, has spent a lot of time with me and with us in the studio when we did the Xavier album, the Point of Pleasure album. And he noticed my talent, the legitimacy of my talent. And so he, uh, one evening, he called the house and he said, are you available later tonight? He said, hop a train and get down here. And I went down and he uh, was working on Melbourne Moore's record at the time. Uh, it was, I think it was our first album with EMI. And she was working with McFadden and Whitehead on, uh, I think it was the song Let's Stand Together. Let's Stand Together. Yeah, that was one of the big records that they were working on together. And Ted invited me down to talk to me. He says, yeah, man. He says, we're working on Melba. She's here. But I still didn't know that I was going to be working with her. I just thought Ted wanted me to come down and hang out, listen to some music. And he had some other artists he wanted me to listen to because he saw my talent as a producer. So uh, before I left his office that night, we were just sitting around in the office, got food and talk. He wrote on a piece of paper, he wrote an address. He says, uh, before you leave town tomorrow, I need you to go to this address. So I went to the address the next day and it was a guy named Charles Huggins and he was sitting behind the desk and he's talking to me. He says, yeah, Ted told me all about you and blah, blah, blah. And uh, 
asked me all these questions. All of a sudden, out of the door, side door, the office opens up and out walks Melvin Moore. So I'm like, okay, all right. And and that's a like I told you, that's a whole different story. Years before, two years before I met her, but uh, she walks out and introduces herself. She didn't have to, but I already knew she was. But I introduced myself to her, and they decided to bring me in on her album to produce a couple of songs on her record, which was a huge blessing and landmark for me. And after that, the relationship was built, and Charles uh, and, and Hush Productions were managing Najee at the time. This was his first record. And I had uh, come to the office, and Najee was in the office with uh, Bo Huggins, and, and they were discussing this record. And he wasn't totally happy with he, he was cool with what he had, but he felt he needed something different, something more. And so I went in the office, Bo called me in, and there was a song that I had written. Actually, I wrote the song. A lot of people don't know this. I wrote this song for uh, Arthur Stokes' brother, Otha. He was, I was going to record this on him because he was like, like on my case, man, I want to record, I want to record. So I wrote this song for him. And But Otha was dealing with some other issues and he wasn't really ready to record in the way I felt he should have at the time. So I said, uh, I got a song I think that would fit Najee. And I didn't have a tape. This is a true story if you ask uh, Bo Huggins about this now. Uh, I didn't have a tape, a demo of it yet. So I started humming. That was Najee's thing. I just started humming it, the whole song. And they were both standing there going like this and snapping their fingers, and, and, they, and they loved it. They said, man, we can hear this. We can hear this, you know. And we went in the studio, man, and um, what I thought was going to be a demo session, we, Najee and I went in and spent about three days and recorded like five or six songs demos supposedly to see how we would work together and the magic was so flawless between he and i uh how we just flowed together we brought the songs back to the office and i said to i said to bo huggins i said all right here are the demos uh when are we going to start working on the album he said i already got my album he said, I'm not changing nothing. These demos, I said, but they're just demos. He said, well, it's too bad because you're not doing these over. And so those songs on that Najee's theme album were, were songs that we just got together and just did because we had fun doing it. And, and, you know, I thought they were just demos that I was supposed to do to show them that we can get something done and then get the real money to go in and do this, you know, well, that makes it so there's no pressure, you know, you just, <laughs> was that his first record? Was that his first record? Yes. Yes, yeah. it was. Nice G's theme was his first album. Yes. And it sold like two million records or something ridiculous like that. Yeah. He made quite a it Basically it made that album, that album with, with the six songs I did and, and Charles Elgard. And you had those songs that he produced with Omar King playing drums and all these guys on this record. This record was full of, amazing musicians and singers 
And I, I it was like, to me, it just pioneered the whole so-called smooth jazz movement because that was the album that was the thing that kind of set the standard. You know, we would never get credit for pioneering smooth jazz, but to uh, all truth be told, Najee is, that album was, was the album. I, yeah, I think at very least a, a cornerstone of that. Yeah. Yes, big cornerstone. Mm-hmm. Of course, we had Grover doing it before us, but we kind of brought it into the, the 80s, that whole new movement of, you know, the more glossier side of things, you know, with the music. So, yeah. Uh, Kenny G cool. holds a, a big debt of gratitude, I think, uh, among others. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes, he does. Yes, hey, he does. I, I, I got to circle back um, and, and dig into the, the Ohio uh, scene a little bit that you were, you were yeah. part of with Xavier. Okay. Xavier, I just want to mention, had worked that sucker to death and also to the max. Yeah. That was a hit on there. Um, yeah. Was that so? That was the first thing, or was Dayton the first thing? Well, Dayton was the first thing out of Ohio. Uh, Xavier is was out of Hartford, Connecticut, my hometown. I get it mixed up because it was all a lot of the same players and also. Yes, it was. Yes, it was. Yes, it was. Because we had George and Bootsy on the Xavier album, Mm -hmm. and then on the Dayton album, we had Bootsy performing uh, on the song "Crackety Crack" on the Dayton album. And but it was all Ted Courier. The bottom line, it was Ted Courier. It was his like, hey man, you know, we gotta put him on this, we gotta do this. And he was orchestrating the whole thing, you know, as the executive of the record label. Well, so how did you uh hook up with Dayton? Through him or separately? Yeah, it was through Ted Courier. It was through Ted Courier. We had so- just out I was in Detroit working on Work That Sucker to Death. And George was recording there at the, the same. We were just in the studio together. And Ted had uh, the group come from Dayton to Detroit. And, and me, so we can meet up. And Ted said, hey, I think you guys need to meet. You need to hook up. I think this can be a, a nice addition to what you guys are going to do on your next record. And that's when, you know, we just kind of became like a family. And uh, we did the Hot Fun album. That was the first album I did with them, uh, which had uh, the song Hot Fun in the Summertime. And uh, we did, uh, I don't know if the Crackety Crack song was on that record or the next record. But anyway, the one with Bootsy, I think, was on that album. And uh, I had sung a duet with Melba Moore, believe it or not, on that album as well. Crackety Crack's on that one. Yeah. Yeah. And in the song Meet the Man that I had sung a duet with Melba on as well. So what were uh, and, oh and, and I think we did, yeah, Hot Fun the Summertime we redid that. Uh, Evan Rogers, who went on to be a great producer uh in his own right, uh, we sung the duet on Hot Fun in the Summertime on that album as well. What what can you tell people about uh the collective of Dayton? You know, because it's a group that did, I think, five albums. And they never hit the success overall that a lot of those other bands from Dayton hit. Ironically, having the name of the city, you know, they didn't hit as big as your Lakesides and, well, your, you know, all those others. So, Well, you know, man, Scott, this is the record industry, man. And if you, if, if you don't have the right uh, management firm, you know, 
Uh, the group had a good dedicated manager, but you know, you got to have those big agency, the big management firms, the guys who are know how to connect to the labels on a whole different level, level, you know, um, knowing the industry, like I know it now, Dayton should have blown up a, over a few records they had, but the politics of the record industry and the marketing and promotion, you got to have people going and making those deals that are highly respected. You know, the mistake a lot of people make, managers and bands, they'll go and they'll get a deal. But, and, and the record executives will like you and they'll talk to you and they, they, they'll give you money to do a record. But there comes a point where you have to say, okay, how can we step our game up from a business standpoint? And that's where a lot of stuff falls apart you know when you don't have that i hate to say this but you don't have that ruthless sob manager that the record label respects and they're not looking to let's do lunch let's hang out let's you know come out to the coast it's none of that it's like they know how to go in sit down and handle business get the big budgets Get the marketing money, get the promotional dollars, get the TV shows, get the right concerts. And that's what Dayton did not have. They didn't have that support. The record executives that were there did they did, they, did what they could, but there was another level, you know, beyond AR, you're still dealing with a label president. You're still dealing with a senior VP of marketing and promotion. You're still dealing with a senior VP of sales. You're dealing with all these other people. Yeah. If you don't have that SOB, that when you mention his name, the whole label says, cancel my appointments for today. We got to talk to this guy about his band. And that's what the other bands have that they did not have. Good people, good, you know, manager, sweetheart, great person. And did her absolute best to keep the integrity of the group and whatever, but it's, it's, it's that next level stuff that just wasn't available. It just wasn't there. So we couldn't get the big deals. And what was your role with Dayton? Uh, mainly as a writer producer and they wanted me to sing. I didn't want to sing. I, I just didn't want to do that. And <laughs> They were, well, we need, we need another sound. You should sing and blah, blah, blah. So I tried singing some lead on some stuff. I hate it even to this day when I listen to it uh, because it wasn't the style that I like to sing. If I was singing stuff that I really was, in, you know, inclined to sing, it would have sounded better. But I hated it. So I, I, that's when I got Evan Rogers. <laughs> and Evan is from Connecticut. He's uh, responsible for Rihanna and a few other big, big artists. Uh, Soul Syndicate, I think he was, uh, that was one of his group, his band. Uh, but I brought him in to sing lead. And uh, that kind of was a big breath of fresh air for me. So I could concentrate more on the production. You see what I'm saying? I never want to be a performer per se. 
unless it's like on stage as a keyboard player with a band. But other than that, I didn't want to be a performer. I wanted to be Tom Bell. I wanted to be Gene Page. I wanted yeah. to be you All know Quincy, named Norman Quincy Jones. You know what I'm saying? Norman yeah. Whitfield. That's who I wanted to be. You know, I don't yeah. want to be no star like that in that way. So I understand you met Bootsy like years prior and then reconnected. <laughs> um, yeah. Tell us your relationship with Bootsy and uh, how you guys work together. Well, Bootsy, uh, I was uh, the album I had mentioned earlier in your in the, in the interview was a gospel record I did and put out in 1977 called A Different Drummer. Young, it's just a bunch of young kids. We were in church and we did this social conscious kind of gospel, mainstream kind of thing, and uh, and it made more. It was it was probably the worst record I ever made in my life. But it made so much noise out there in in the world, you know. It was a guy named Dave Casey from Program Records in New Jersey who took it and put it out and he just distributed it all over the place. I'm talking everywhere. And we even ended up in Cashbox magazine. And in Record World magazine elected us the best new gospel artist of the year, which I, you know, I couldn't believe it. We were we we were elected that. I think it was over Walter Hawkins that year. And I'm like, what? This record sucks, you know. But that's what I'm talking about when you got the right people, you know. So that album went out. I'm sitting at Boosty's house. Uh, it was one evening after we had recorded Crackety Crack uh, because the Xavier phenomenon had happened. So Boosty had heard of me already. Ted Courier had already told him, hey, man, come over. I want, you know, since you're in Cincinnati, they're in Dayton come over and put something on the song crackety crack it's a real funk tune and so he agreed he came over we sat we talked and we laughed we you know and we just had a great time and then he invited us to his home after the session and he walked in this theater room and he has this beautiful theater room huge screen so we're all the band was sitting there and then before i know it boosie taps me on my uh shoulder and says hey man uh, he said come come with me for a minute and so we go upstairs. I'm following him upstairs in his house. And he opens the door to this room. And it's it's like, you know, the rooms that, you know, when you're out on the road, you come home, that's where you're dumping your guitars, your amplifiers. And it was that kind of space. And it had a chair. And he said, have a seat, man, have a seat. And he goes in his closet. And I'm hearing him just, you know, rustling in the closet. And he comes out of the closet. And he lifts that album up, a different drummer. Because when he was in Hartford, when I first released that record in 77, he had just did a show at the Harvard Civic Center and he was in the record store the next day. I gave him that album. I had it with me and I gave him that record back in 77. But I never thought I would ever see him again. Oh, but or you, did, he would you, ever did remember, you did remember it, though. I remember the moment yeah. and I remember when he came to work with us in the studio, I was like, wow, I never thought that we would end up together like this, but I had never asked him about, Hey, you do you remember me? And, you know, cause I'm not into that thing with big name stars and people that I've met or whatever. I just don't like that whole, yeah, remember me, man, I gave you a record. I didn't mention anything. He remembered on his own and invited me. Up. And when he pulled that record out, 
I said, oh, my God. I said, no, don't tell me. He said, man, I didn't forget. He said, I can't believe. I'm, he said, man, I got goosebumps right now. He said, I can't believe that this that you was you are you and this is you. He said, I've held on to this record all this time. He said, in times when I would be out on the road or whatever, he said, man, I would just play this. He said, just very, it just inspired me it, with this, the things you're singing about on this record. It just really, it was just really great, man. It just kind of kept me going. And I said, you're kidding me. Then he pulls out a t-shirt of the, of the uh, store, the clothing store that I was in that day when I gave him the record. It's called Male Image. It was down on Main Street in Hartford, Connecticut. He he remembered. I couldn't believe it. So after that, I became a fixture in his sessions when we did uh, the uh, the Count record, um, the Count Giveth. I think that's the name of it. The one giveth, the Count taketh. That, yeah, 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 I have a yeah, signed, yeah. Cop, signed copy of my wall over the desk here. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so we're in the studio. I was in the studio with him. Uh, we we recorded a lot of that between fifth floor of studios in uh, Cincinnati. And uh, 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 Universal Studios, I think, up as United Studios, Universal Studios, United, I forgot, big studio in Detroit uh, went up there. But he would have me in there, boy, we'd be, we be at it, you know. He said, yeah, put some of this on it, man. Put some of that, some of that slide base. Put some of this thing. We were just vibing, going at it, going at it. And to record on those records, man, with him was just, ah. I call my friends back home because, you know, what you got to understand is I'm from a town. Generally, I'm from a town as a kid growing up when I grew up. Those kind of things happening to you was just not possible. It was so far out of your reach. You see people on TV. Nah, you know, you just you know what I'm saying? It's not that kind of place like uh, growing up in New York or the Bronx or, you know, these other cities where. You know, you you feel like I can do this because my friends are doing. Yeah, yeah. I it, was, it wasn't that kind of town at all. And everybody that you talked to about it, and and said you wanted to do something huge or big, looked at you like you were nuts, and laughed at you. So to walk in and work with this guy and have him remember me and call me and work with me and me work with him, and then with George as well. Uh, my my buddy Scott Smith actually ended up playing on the stage with him as what well, with with George as well, but he was from Harford too. We just were just spellbound, man. Like, dude, we actually did it. We actually got to work with the guys that we idolized growing up and saying we wish, we wish, we wish, you know. And the same thing with David uh, Ruffin and Eddie Kendrick. You know, when I when I walked in the room and sat with them and talked about doing their record. I was like, this is not happening. You know, it was so far out of realm of possibility for, for a kid like me. So <laughs> to be able to work with Lucy and George and these guys were just a blessing. Had you ever seen them perform even back in the 70s? Uh, you yeah. Know, to your yeah. Punk? yeah. So you got to, yeah. yeah. That's, that's what made it more insane. <laughs> that's what made it more insane, man. Was, That's actually amazing. right around that time. 82 is when I first met Bootsy too. Um, okay. Cause he was do doing a promo thing for that album. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. There's much more to this great truth and rhythm interview. Just continue on to the next part of the episode.
Also, be sure to subscribe to this channel. If you've already done so, please share it with friends. And become a member by joining Truth and Rhythm on Patreon or consider donating at funkinslift.net. Thank you very much.